The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So welcome back from the break. I say that we listen to the Metta Sutta one more time and we chant it together. It's part of... You can just like see how this feels for you to... No, to have to go to go through this one one more time. We'll, we'll do this a few times today. So if you have your chant sheets with you, and so we'll do this together again with uh, with our friends up there in Abayagiri that we don't know, but they exist on the internet for us. <laughs> okay, here we go. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud and demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove, wishing in gladness and in safety may all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another, or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will, wish harm upon another, even as a mother protects with her life, her child, her only child. So with a boundless heart, should one cherish all living beings, Radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, free from hatred and ill will, whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding, by not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. How was that? 
to go through one more time. Did it feel any different? Maybe you could just nod your head, yes, no, kind of the same. (laughs) So I talked a little bit about um, the relationship of the metta sutta to our metta practice, to loving kindness practice. But this, of course, is spoken by the Buddha, so it's part of Buddhist practice. So we might also consider, like, what is what is in this uh, sutta that's related to Buddhist practice? Earlier we talked about this wishing in gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease. And we talked about how there's these different ways to radiate it out. So in the metta sutta, there's some particular... Like, uh, starts with maybe line 16, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty. So sending this out to other people. But there's more things in this sutta than just this, than wishing goodwill for others and sending it out to different people or different beings. What is the other things that are in the sutta, and why is it there? So, as maybe a little introduction to that, I think all of us know that freedom, peace, so radical freedom, radical peace, is the purpose, is the objective, is the goal of Buddhist practice. And so this loving kindness, this goodwill, this love that we're cultivating as part of our Buddhist practice is a type of love that's characterized by freedom. It's characterized by peace. It's unconditional for all beings. And so we recognize that love that's has a little bit of clinging to it or confusion to it or it's more um, isn't the love that's being pointed to here this is pointed what's in the metta sutta is this love loving kindness that's about openness complete inclusivity complete unconditionality complete freedom For those of you who are practitioners and have been practicing, you know that both the path to the freedom and the obstacles to that freedom are inside of us. It's not, even though it might be our temptation to always be thinking about what's happening outside and blaming things or thinking, well, I'll love everybody as soon as they start behaving themselves or as soon as they start... uh, matching the way that I think that things should be or something like this. But the path is, we walk the path towards greater and greater freedom. And this path requires us to take responsibility. Responsibility for our attitudes, responsibilities for our thoughts, and responsibility for our actions, how we are in the world, how we show up. What kind of mindset do we bring to the world? I'm saying the world, but also to ourselves. 
Of course, we're part of the world too. Part of the Buddhist path is to engage in perspectives that lighten us, that help us see things more clearly and as opposed to being um, constricting and uh, diminishing, that help us find greater freedom and greater peace. Probably many of you know that one of the paths to this greater freedom is the Eightfold Path. Some of you in this room have been part of the IMC's uh, program on the Eightfold Path. Probably if you uh, pick up an introductory Buddhism book, they all talk about this Eightfold Path. I'll say just a few words about it. That it's um, eight uh, interrelated practices that we use this um, word uh, right behind the, in front of them. If you're um, to describe these practices, in English we use this word right. Maybe that's an unfortunate translation. In Pali, the word is sama. We could understand it as not meaning a moralistic, this is right and everything is wrong and you must adopt this belief and think that this is right or you're not part of our tribe. That's not what it's about. This word right means it's in harmony with. It means appropriate. In the same way that if you need to put a hammer to... um, um, connect things, I'm sorry, a nail to connect things, the right, quote-unquote, tool is a hammer as opposed to spaghetti, right? There's this right tool is the best tool, the most appropriate, the most helpful. So this Eightfold Path, as the name suggests, has these eight elements, and it's on the back of this handout what those elements are. But we could summarize this Eightfold Path as well as other uh, more expanded versions. There's lots of different variations of this in the um, Buddhist suttas and the Buddhist scriptures. It can be summarized as, in Pali, we say sila, samadhi, panya. I like to say this, just I like the sound of it, sila, samadhi, panya. Sila, it's about um, ethics, about morality, virtue, our behavior in the world, how we show up with other people. Also how we show up for ourselves, our actions. Samadhi has two meanings. One means just concentration. But here that word samadhi means a kind of a, a more um, broader meaning. It's like meditative development, mindfulness practice, concentration practice. Things that uh, help quiet the mind and help us to see more clearly. That's samadhi. And then panya, wisdom. So having insights, having understandings that then influence our behavior, influence um, certainly our meditation as well. We can have some um, insights that help support meditation, help support our behavior. But also, of course, 
once the mind starts to quiet down and starts to get a little bit settled, it's just natural that certain insights will arise. It's part of the reason that we do meditation practice. So that you can create the room, create the conditions in which different insights can arise. There's can be maybe... Um, I read a description once that uh, I liked. said something like this, that a greater understanding is something that just helps you understand how you are in the world. But an insight changes how you are in the world. So something that like, is really impactful is that insight is like something in the inside of us. Like, oh, yes, oh, I see. Both types of insights are important. And both of them have a you know, way uh, that influence our lives and which part of Buddhist practice is to help make this happen or to create the conditions in which we can have these insights. So we have this sila, kind of morality, virtue, ethics, samadhi, meditative development, some people would even say mental development, and panya, wisdom. So much of the Buddhist teachings are organized, sila, samadhi, panya, whether explicit or implicit, even like some of the things we do here at IMC, we organize around sila, samadhi, panya, without necessarily even saying that. Just this recognition so that we don't um, influence or we don't practice only one of these aspects. We need all three. We need all three to find freedom. And the path of freedom is cultivating all three. The tradition says this, uh, Sila Samadhi Panya, in this order. And the tradition is, kind of the path is in this order. But for everybody who's practiced, you know that it it doesn't unfold in exactly this order. Maybe there's some some development and samadhi, which then helps you to see, like, oh, yeah, okay, maybe there's a new way for me to understand kind of ethics or morality. Uh, Maybe you have a new insight what helps you to understand, oh, right, uh, how certain things unfold in your meditation practice. So the Eightfold Path is like the stereotypical or common um, expression of Sila Samadhi Panya. It's not the only one, as I said, but it's um, one that many of us are familiar with. But as you'll see on this handout, there's also like the five faculties, these five qualities that all of us have. And then the Buddhist path is to have these mature, mature be developed and cultivate them, allow them to come to a full expression and to be in balance. Nothing particularly Buddhist about this, but that Buddhist practice is to help um, these different factors to arise and in a, in a way that supports greater and greater freedom. And the same is true for the seven factors of awakening. Those of you may know that, uh, like Nikki Murgafori has been teaching a year-long course on the seven factors of awakening, like where each month is one of these months. This, we've done this a few times at IMC. 
you'll notice that some of the elements are the same in faculties and in awakening and indeed in the Eightfold Path. Energy, mindfulness, and concentration are in all three. So are part of the samadhi. So, what about the metta sutta? Is the metta sutta, can it also be part of this path towards greater and greater freedom, towards greater ease? Does the metta sutta include sila, samadhi, panya? Does it include ethics? Does it include meditative development? We were just kind of talked about meditative development, so maybe we can say yes. Does it include wisdom? Where is wisdom in there? And where are some of are these other elements that are kind of these key things for the Buddhist path, that is the five faculties and the seven factors of awakening? Are they also in the Metta Sutta? Is the Metta Sutta, can we hold it as a part of the path of practice? Or is it just this nice kind of feel-good thing, we love everybody, or maybe get concentrated or have the mind stilled, or maybe the heart opened? Or is it, can it be part of the path of practice by itself? Or does it augment other practices? So now with that as a question, let's, you can, your choice whether you want to chant or whether you want to listen to this, the Metta Sutta one more time. And just with the holding these questions, is there stuff in here that's about morality? Is there stuff in here that's about meditation, which we have talked about, but maybe you can highlight those. Is there stuff in here that's about wisdom? So one more time, we'll chant this. In part, I am, this is intentional that we're listening to this again and again, because this has an impact when you hear something over um, repeatedly. And we can talk about what that impact is as we get there. Okay, so here we go. The metta sutta again. And it's your choice whether you want to chant or just listen. This is what should be done. By one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace, let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways. Peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud and demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. Wishing in gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the 
unseen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another, even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child. So with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, free from hatred and ill will, whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection, this is said to be the sublime abiding, by not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being free from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. Were there some things there that maybe that that jumped out as saying, "Oh, this clearly is about sila. This is about how we're behaving in the world. This clearly is about wisdom." Or maybe there's some lines you're not even quite sure. I'm not sure what this is. If it's sila, samadhi, or pani. If it's ethics, meditation, or wisdom. I think it'd be nice to discuss this in a small group. Because, well, there's a whole range of different ideas. There's a few ways in which we can think about this and look at this. So why don't we get into groups of three and just explore this idea of, are there some lines in here that have to do with ethics? Are there some that have to do with wisdom? Are there some lines that have to do with meditative development? And why don't we get into groups of three, and it'd be nice to be with um, people that you haven't been before, and just explore this. What are these? What are some of the other elements that are in this metta sutta besides just uh, meditative development and cultivating loving kindness, or maybe there's supports for developing loving kindness and meditative development? If you want to get into group of threes and discuss that, thank you. Okay, so now I'd love to hear from all of you about some of the maybe discoveries, some of the discussions. There was no need to come to a consensus about what all these uh, different elements are in the Manta Sutta or what is there. But I'd love to hear from you. What are some ideas that you had, some discoveries, some questions? Yeah. I have a question. Uh, in Buddhism, it's, it's pretty well known, the teaching about a no, no, no self. There is no ultimate impermanent self. And line 42 to me implies something different, like what is being reborn if there is no permanent, continuous self? 
Yeah, this is a standard question. Is it? <laughs> yes, of course. Oh, okay. <laughs> Wait, if there isn't a self, then there's this rebirth. How does that whole rebirth thing happen? Um, I would say a, a few things. One, I'm not going to go into a big long, but I could do a whole day long on this. Um, as you said, there isn't a permanent self. There isn't a... Um, Maybe here's the way, maybe here's two ways to think about it. You can, they may or may not be satisfactory. Uh, um, a common one is if there's a candle and the candle has a flame and you take a second candle and, the f- and you can touch it and the flame goes to, this, to the second candle. So is the second flame, is it the same or is it different than the preceding one? Maybe in the same way, kind of rebirth is like that. Maybe there's a passing on, and in some ways they're the same, and in some ways they're different. Maybe another way is um, to think about um, billiard balls. Sometimes when we play pool, we, um, we hit the cue ball, the white ball, and it hits the next ball and causes that next ball to go and do something. So the cue ball has momentum and then it causes the next thing to have momentum too after it so <laughs> so these are okay okay so these are uh, two ways we can think about it okay so what did you discover what, what else is here in the metta sutta besides metta or maybe it's all metta and there doesn't have to be any, there's no, uh, you know, absolute right answer. This is something just for us to explore. Yeah, we, we kind of got into a kind of exegetical discussion of kind of interpreting the text. That was my kind of my fault. But, and I think where it led me personally was uh, asking why is this sutta called the Metta Sutta? Yeah. And because... Uh, you know, we discuss kind of the uh, the meaning and connection of the first three lines and the last four lines, which seem to say that all the qualities that are described in this are the qualities of a person, of the one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace which implies to me someone who is well into their practice. And, um, and you know, as we examined the text in the middle, what we found was, for example, the first lines 4 through 12 um, are, about, are about wisdom, um, ethics. Um, and uh, it's really only at line 13 that, it seems to be something that is recognizable, you know, at least for me and maybe others, um, where we get to something that is meta. And um, and that continues through 29, and then it goes off into kind of a different direction where we're saying pervade, pervasiveness or whatever it's called, <laughs> directional. And but it comes back to this um, uh, to this basically saying these are the qualities of this pure-hearted one, and um, 
so when you start to look at it the way that way, and there are some interesting other there are some other um, uh, statements such as thirty eight. This is said to be the sublime abiding, which is what is that a reference to? And we kind of discussed that it's probably a reference to everything in this text. And so that comes back to uh, uh, this doesn't seem to be this is not a sutta about meta meta is only a part of this whole sutta and and so yeah yeah okay so there's other things in here besides just meta somebody want to point to so you said that lines 4 through 12 were about uh, wisdom and ethics are they about both what is wisdom what is ethics I, I'll um, hand you the microphone, and but I I actually think one thing your your comment inspired in me was the reflection that metta is the result, uh, and the the metta sutta is about all of practice. Which which made me wonder about, um, um, I mean. Don't want to, you know. Call, why, why then do we discuss about we discuss a meta practice or a practice to cultivate meta? Um, and I guess I'll just leave that question there. Um, going back to kind of the exercise, I thought it was interesting that you gave us this this lens to look at the text. Um, to me, it was kind of um, like a key to kind of unpack it. Like it, it, it became richer because when we discussed kind of the lines, there was no really a, a right answer. Um, like someone saw ethics and someone saw this, and and you could really interpret that it's there everywhere <laughs> in 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 some way. Uh, so it, it felt really rich and then um, one thing that uh, Forrest pointed out which really um, gave um, a lot of appreciation for me is when looking at at one line like there is very often it's made of two parts and why are those two in relationship uh, was very interesting those two words in relationship in that verse. I see. In the same line, like two different words in the same line. Yeah, yeah. Recognizing, of course, that this is a translation. So, and and Pauli, well, Pauli's really, we'll talk about this a little bit uh, later too. In Pauli, this thing is much smaller. There's like one Pauli word often gets translated as a whole bunch of uh, English words just to have it make sense. Anybody else have some comments, questions? Where else might there be some wisdom in here? Um, I feel like the first and last... 
I mean, I feel like the second clause or paragraph definitely is wisdom, like we said, just because you see the word wise in there twice. Um, that the first and last maybe um, like wise view. Having, where's wise view? Or I just feel like maybe it's part of like wise view, right? Right view. I see. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Exactly about views. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I'll offer something here. Some interpretation. This is just interpretation, right? We're welcome to make this our own. I would say I'm not a person. I don't want to sit up here and say, "Here's how it is." You're encouraged to explore and practice with this for your for yourself. But there's um, here's one way to think about it. Lines one through three describes the practitioner. This is the person who's going to do it. Describe uh, lines four through twelve is saying, well, this practitioner is going to be an ethical person. This is how they're going to behave. They're going to behave in a way that doesn't harm others, or you know, they, yeah, how, how they show up in the world. Straightforward, humble, content, frugal, peaceful, not proud and demanding. One in which it makes it easy to love them, maybe too, right? And then lines 13 through 21, you can see right where I put these paragraph marks. I put the spaces here. Like the Metta Sutta, of course, isn't organized this. Yes, I'm sorry. I should. I did say it at the beginning, but maybe I should emphasize it. This is one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. There is, but that, that's uh, just a coincidence. So the uh, 13 through 21. It's like this meditative development of metta to all classes of beings. Right? First it starts off may, um, in gladness and in safety. May all beings be at ease, number 14, number 15, whatever living beings. Kind of a general statement. And then get into specific classes with 16 through 20. The weak and the strong. Everybody the mighty, medium, short, or small. So these are like different ways in which you can classify beings. In this classification, humans are medium beings. Great beings are the whales and elephants. Maybe tiny ones are, you know, insects and small creatures. It's one way we can interpret it. The seen and the unseen, a few ways we can interpret that. One could be people that you know and have experienced or you've interacted with and those whom you don't know. That could be one way. So you could even practice this way with doing loving kindness for people you have relationships with and then people that you have never met and probably will never met. That's one way you could do it. Some people um, do with this next line, living near and far away. Maybe some people practice with near being North America and far away being other continents or other places. Born and to be born. We, those beings, of course, who exist and those who maybe are still in an egg or in a womb somewhere. So you can see that the way these kind of like these dyads are done is to include everybody. 
the idea is if you're not near, then you're far. If you're not born, and you're to be born, or it doesn't exist yet, or if you're seen or you're unseen. The idea here is that is to leave no being excluded. And then this idea that um, by dividing the beings in these different ways, it helps highlight for us those uh, beings in which we may not, we may forget, not think about, or which we may not have, uh, we may have a little bit stickiness towards or not something. Yes. What about the dead? Yeah, so the dead, it, in, um, sometimes there, this can be a practice to send them some good vibes. But in this, um, this practice here is not a less, it's a little bit less about for the dead. It's more about, you know, wishing um, in gladness and in safety. It doesn't quite make sense that maybe the dead be safe. Well, maybe, I don't know. But it's, it's, not, the, the, it's not the emphasis here. And then uh, lines 22 through 25 is kind of this highlighting, okay, you're sending goodwill, but that's highlighting what is metta. Metta is this non-harming, and it's this relational aspect with other people. So we don't deceive other people, we don't harbor um, ill will or hatred or towards other people. So just kind of fleshing out this is what metta is. 26 through 29 is to turn up the volume of the metta, to intensify it, just in the same way that a mother does with their child, with her child. And then um, 30 through 34, after you've turned up the volume, then to expand it even more. So expand it with directional pervasions over the entire world, upwards, downwards, outwards, unbounded, everywhere. 35 through 38 is to expand the metta for when to practice it. When are you doing this? It's not in a formal meditation posture, perhaps, like we might see um, with... uh, um, like if, if those of you who are familiar with these suttas that talk about meditation, that's always like you know, kind of sits cross-legged and sits upright at the root of a tree. This is kind of uh, different than that. Saying no, you do it standing, walking, seated, or lying down. The tradition holds you're doing one of those four postures. You're either seated or standing, or you're either walking, walking or lying down. So that means whatever you're doing. Of this um, this ex- expansion, and not just on the cushion, exactly. And then thirty nine through forty two is um, some. It can be interpreted as a description of um, what are some of the consequences of this. It has a little bit of wisdom in there, and then what are the consequences? So by not holding to fixed views. So that might be views about who's worthy of loving kindness and who's not worthy of loving kindness, as well as not any views. This is part of the Buddhist practice. 
not to hold on to them. A pure-hearted one, one who's kind of has practiced uh, meditation this way and has, as sometimes it's described as a purification practice. That's kind of purified from all um, ill will. Having clarity of vision, seeing things clearly. This often is a kind of a, describes insight when you see things clearly. And then this, um, without going into a big um, exposition on the different levels of awakening, I'll say this, that in the Theravada tradition there are different levels of awakening. And this is describing one particular level. There's four levels and they get described in two ways. Each level gets described in two ways gets described in what kind of fetters get um, abandoned, never to return. That's the first way. And the second way is it gets described in terms of where you're reborn. So we see both happening here, not having fixed views and being freed from all sense desires. That suggests somebody who has the third level of awakening. This is a little bit of esoterica about uh, Buddhism. And then it says, is not born again into this world. Somebody who has a third level of awakening is born, we'll use this word, born. It's more kind of understood like spontaneously arises into a heavenly realm, into a Brahma realm, into a beautiful place, not in the um, uh, human realm. And from the person that's being described here from this heavenly realm, there they will achieve complete awakening. So they will never come back into a human form, but they will achieve complete awakening. That's a whole other thing. I like this idea about rebirth and awakening and things like that, but it's kind of what the tradition holds. So I offer this as one way to kind of like approach uh, the Metta Sutta. It doesn't have to be the only way, but um, here's some ways to think about it. You had a question, Sylvie? Yeah, from what you can, can you uh, hold? From what you just said, uh, it feels like then metta would be, um, can take you all the way to awakening. So I think this is such a great point, and um, maybe I can talk about that a little bit more. But I think it's important, these last lines by not holding to fixed views and having clarity of vision and being freed from all sense desires. So whether metta practice alone can help you to not have fixed views, to see things clearly, and to be free from sense desires, I think that's uh, traditionally understood as the insights help with that. But what metta does, and I think probably all of you have this experience, it quiets the mind and settles the mind and it does a certain like purification and opening, this beautiful state can arise. And then you're more likely to have that insight and then have awakening. So it helps create the conditions in which you can have awakening. But just loving kindness by itself, um, in fact, the Buddha flat out says in the suttas quite a few times, that loving kindness just by itself, not with this giving up views, not giving up sense desire, but just loving kindness may help you be reborn in a nice place, but won't take you to awakening. 
Does that make sense? I'm trying to make a distinction that as a concentration practice, it helps you to have insights and it's the insights that give you the um, awakening. As a meditation practice itself, it'll help you to be reborn into a place and and a good place. Um, I'm also thinking, though, that there, every path factor is in this sutta, but um, right there's every every component, and it is said that by finding balance and practicing the full path, it, that's what leads to awakening. So, that's right. so it's 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 one of those. Um, I don't know the right term for it, but you, there are many doorways in. That's right. Um, and so this is. Um, maybe not telling you exactly how to get concentrated or how, you know, it tells you to use right effort. It tells you to cultivate mindfulness, you know, sustaining and all these things. But but it does have within it all the components that are required. Yes, yes. So thank you, Tanya. So I guess I was wanting to make this distinction. So you, I agree with you, the metta sutta, but metta practice where you are just... Uh, may you be happy, may you be healthy. That is, um, may help you get reborn in a good place. But the metta sutta, right? There's a lot of good stuff in here. We often are thinking, like, oh, this is just to help you practice loving kindness. But there's some, I'll just say, a lot of good stuff in here. <laughs> so just to kind of support that, um, I because I, I um, the phrases in the Metta Sutta are reminders. You know, we we're talking about able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, kind. You know, behaving in certain ways. It's instructions on how to operate through life, and they're, they're, it's helpful to have those phrases to be to rem, to remind us to be mindful of as yeah. well. So yeah. it is kind of a useful, like a guidebook to have handy. Yeah, so, yeah. That's the Metta Sutta. Maybe I'll point out, I think that, I think maybe it was you, Andrew, I'm not sure, that said, uh, now why is this called the Metta Sutta again? <laughs> Where's the Metta? Well, it's in I here. Yes, yes, it does have the most metta. But I do want to point out, uh, so our translators here, this word metta is in the sutta. And let's see, um, it's here in line 30. They are translating metta as kindness, radiating kindness over the entire world. So metta doesn't show up, right? The actual word there until metta sutta. And um, it's often called the karaniya metta sutta, Karnia being um, the first word of the lines, like this is what should be done. And maybe I'll um, add this. This is my own little, uh, I don't know, something that I like to think about. So this line number one, this is what should be done. In Pali, there's no, they don't make a distinction between what should be done, what could be done, what would be done. They don't have those three different words. They just have one word that's like the potential. Here's, there's, here's something that's potentially to be done. So 
could play around with that. Does that make a difference if instead of should, this is what could be done or this is what would be done? Does it have a little different uh, feeling for you? Could it mean what is done? Yeah, it's about like what is the potential to be done. Yeah, what isn't happening right now but can be done in the in the future. So yeah, yeah. Okay, so let's let's take a lunch. Is there are there any more questions or comments or? Yeah. Very briefly, um, in the translation that I learned, it was the pure-hearted one. And I've changed that a little bit for myself because I like a pure-hearted one. That sort of feels more inclusive, like lots of opportunity. It sounds like maybe the monastic version is the pure-hearted one. Oh, interesting. So are you talking about line 40 here, the, like right near the end, the pure-hearted one? Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So maybe I'll say this in Pali. Pali does not have articles. It doesn't have this word, the, nor does it have the word, a. Uh. So in English, when we translate, we add them. So it's perfectly fine to use that or a. So we can, it's, and we'll talk about this a little bit later after lunch, the kind of the influence of translation and poly and how we interpret this. What do you plan to do this afternoon, I'm sorry, Silly? What do you plan to do this afternoon? So this afternoon, we're going to talk a little bit of um, the surrounding story around, like, when was this given? What was the occasion that the Buddha gave this uh, discourse? And there's a story about that, that, which I've heard a version of on retreats, but I'm going to unpack that a little bit, and we'll talk about it, like, what's, why do we even talk about the story? And we're going to talk about this role of translation, and we're going to talk about make this our own. How can we make this practice our own, this metta sutta and... Um, I'll discuss some things about that there. So it's 12.25. Let's come back in one hour at 1.25. Okay, thank you.